my regards to King Todd, asshole. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond, the film podcast that covers films of the 1990s as well as newer films that were influenced or sequels to films that came out in the 1990s. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the 90s. Actually, 1996 to be exact is when I started posting film reviews online. You can read all of my written work at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you happen to be there, I do encourage you to check out the link that goes to my other podcast called Around the World in 80s Movies, where, as you guessed, I do cover films of the 1980s there at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into a film that came out kind of toward the middle of the 1990s. Last week I talked about Godzilla, so I decided to go back a few years to the same creative team, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, a film they did in 1994 called Stargate. Stargate is a PG-13 rated film. It does have science fiction based action violence. The runtime is, well, depends on whether you watch the uh, director's cut or not, or the extended edition. Two hours and one minute from the theater, a little bit, almost 10 minutes more on the extended version. Kurt Russell and James Spader are the main stars, Millie Avatar. John Deal, Alexis Cruz, and many others are in the film in a supporting role. Roland Emmerich, as I mentioned, is the director. He also co-writes the screenplay along with Dean Devlin. Now, the origin of Stargate actually came to Roland Emmerich many, many, many years before. Uh, Around 1978, Emmerich was a film school student in Munich, in Germany. He was at his apartment, and he was screening this documentary on television about among other things, who built the Great Pyramids of Giza and why they might have been built. This documentary incorporated some ideas from Eric von Daniken's book called Chariots of the Gods. In that book, that von Daniken book, there were theories that technologically advanced aliens had somehow influenced human civilizations over the years, including ancient Egypt. As somebody who was particularly obsessed with ancient Egyptian culture and art and architecture, Roland Emmerich was astonished by this documentary, and he felt that these concepts could form the basis of a great movie idea, and so he proceeded to come up with one. Eventually, he called it Necropole, or Necropolis, and this would be set amid the fabled Egyptian city of the dead. Emmerich's story was not really fully formulated. He did conceive of an opening scene, at least. A spaceship gets unearthed that had been long buried underneath the Great Pyramid at Giza. And that was discovered because local children were being lured there, and then those children would go missing. Unfortunately, the German film industry at the time was not able to financially support some movie like this that would have elaborate sets or effects necessary. So... Emmerich decided to shelve it until he had a little bit more clout as a filmmaker. Flash forward about 10 years, 1989, Emmerich met Dean Devlin. He was directing Moon 44. Devlin was an actor for that film. But not only an actor, it turns out, he happened to be an aspiring writer. 
and he voluntarily assisted Emmerich with some necessary script revisions. During this period, Emmerich discussed his necropole concept to Devlin, and Devlin related his own passion project that he had stored away that he didn't have a name for, but he basically said it was Lawrence of Arabia on another planet. Devlin's premise involved this good guy chasing a bad guy, and the bad guy escapes into a wormhole, and then the good guy, he hesitates momentarily before going into the wormhole in pursuit, and that brief pause on Earth, which was maybe five seconds or so, equated to 30 years passing on the distant planet on the other side, during which the bad guy has proliferated. He has set up an evil empire there, in fact. So nabbing the criminal requires the good guy to inspire the enslaved masses toward revolution. Emmerich and Devlin continued their collaboration as writing partners when Moon 44's conceptual artist, Oliver Scholl, suggested maybe they should merge their ideas. Maybe they could have like some sort of Star Trek-type teleportation device that could start with one premise and then take you to the other. And they thought that was a great idea. So while brainstorming how they were going to make this work, they started screening a retrospective film series on Hollywood's historical epics that was hosted by Charlton Heston. And those films included such big ones like El Cid and Spartacus and Cleopatra. Heston made a comment during the presentation that these kinds of films, these historical epics, really are not something that could really be made today because they were incredibly expensive. Devlin and Emmerich viewed that statement as a challenge. They wanted to make a grand-scale epic worthy of these kinds of films or a Cecil B. DeMille opus, and they wanted to pay homage to other films that they like, sci-fi concepts that they particularly loved, including Flash Gordon serials and stories written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Visual effects technology, well, that had really come up to speed. That could supplant the expense of having to build massive sets or hiring hundreds of thousands of extras to appear in the film. Emmerich and Devlin entitled their new story that they merged, The Two Great Tastes That Taste Great Together, so to speak, because of its teleportation device, they called it Stargate. Their Stargate was triangular at the time, kind of like the pyramids, and it would allow travel between Earth and this alien planet. After a brilliant child unearths this buried artifact and discovers how to activate it, a team of scientists and military personnel travel through that portal, and they also take the child because they figured he would be necessary to decipher how to return back home, and there they find a distant planet where humans are being enslaved by aliens. Now, once their first script was completed, Emmerich and Devlin shopped it around. Several studios did like it, at least conceptually, but none were fully prepared to commit to financing a film from this untested creative team that would easily cost over $100 million to make. Emmerich assured them that he could make his film for half that, but none of these studios believed it. Now, initially, their story at that time was proceeding chronologically. It would begin with the events of 8000 BC. They decided to revise that concept in order to try to save money. They wanted to keep the events mostly in the present day, and they would use occasional flashbacks to the past whenever needed for the story. The triangular Stargate did become circular at some point when Emmerich envisioned chevrons rotating to lock in coordinates that would activate the technology. The final script that they shot with 
begins during a burial dig in the 1920s. That's where they find a large metallic ring-shaped mechanism amid the Great Pyramids of Giza. However, it wasn't until the 1990s that science was advanced enough to try to understand what this device could do. Not quite enough, because they needed, the scientists need, an additional person who could understand the hieroglyphs. So this team of scientists enlist Dr. Daniel Jackson. He's an Egyptologist and this linguist whose theories that humans couldn't have possibly created the ancient Egyptian civilization 5,000 years ago. Those theories may have made him an outcast in the scientific community, but he still is very valuable as somebody who understands a lot of hieroglyphs. The mechanism, which Jackson translates to using the hieroglyphs as a stargate, it's a gateway to another world on the other end of the known universe. So Jackson, as well as a troop of soldiers led by Colonel Jack O'Neill, they're sent through this stargate to investigate. And there they discover a civilization very similar to that of ancient Egypt. But this one is lorded over by a strange but powerful figure. The Egyptians consider the god Ra. Now, despite the revisions to try to make it seem more economical, Studios were even more reticent as time went on because they had begun shifting away from science fiction adventures in favor of more straight action flicks. These studios really saw little potential for this movie that mixed historical theories with retro sci-fi concepts and a lot of old-fashioned adventure. Whenever it was being pitched, the studio execs only saw it as some sort of blend of Indiana Jones and Star Wars and nothing really new. So... Devlin tried to pitch it a little bit more like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, in which characters would traverse from the mundane world into a new world of wondrous fantasy, and discovery being the more important element of this story, much more so than the action. Emmerich and Devlin's agents told them flat out, look, Stargate was a lost cause. They should probably move on to other projects. This just was not the time to push it forward. But the duo determined that they would rather risk failure trying to continue to pursue this original concept that they fully believed in instead of trying to take on a derivative one that they didn't. They insisted that Stargate would be made someday, hopefully soon, and without having to compromise their vision. An opportunity did emerge shortly afterward when producer Mario Casar, Casar was the co-founder of Karolko Pictures. Emmerich happened to have had a working relationship with Kassar previously on a project for Sylvester Stallone called Isobar that never got made, but he did impress Kassar with his talent. Kassar needed somebody to take over the reins of Universal Soldier because he had just fired the previous director, Andrew Davis. Kassar said that if Emmerich was willing to help complete Universal Soldier, he would help him make his next project. And indeed, Universal Soldier not only got made by Emmerich as well as Devlin, who assisted with the rewrites, but it went on to earn over $100 million worldwide, so a pretty decent sleeper hit. Fortuitously, many within the crew of Universal Soldier would become instrumental in helping pull together Stargate to, and bring it to life. Production designer Holger Gross, visual effects supervisor Kit West, and Mario Kassar himself. Kassar happened to be an Egyptian art fanatic who decided to executive produce Stargate independently from Kuroko. Kuroko was suffering financially at the time. They couldn't muster the resources, so Kassar decided he was going to try to fund this somehow by pulling in other investors. Kassar found an agreeable partner in Mark Friedman, who ran Studio Canal Plus, 
the American production wing of the French pay TV company Studio Canal. Friedman loved this as a concept, but unfortunately, they couldn't really afford to fund more than $25 million to make this film. And Devlin disingenuously, perhaps, opportunistically asserted that Stargate, oh, that yes, it was a $25 million picture, no more than that. And they proceeded to make the deal. Now, after they started talking about it quite a bit more in depth, Friedman realized that Stargate was going to cost a lot more than $25 million, but he, by that point, was really sold on the concept, so he decided to obtain additional partners to increase the budget. To save money, they did try to expand the pre-production phase greatly to try to iron out all of the details they needed to before production would begin. Additional financing was provided by Hexagon Films, which is the American subsidiary of Studio Canal+. Plus. Amherst's production company also did some investment, that company called Centropolis, and there were a mix of other French and American banks involved. At that time, the budget was estimated to be between 30 and $40 million. It was, they thought they were going to shoot it in primarily in Los Angeles as well as parts of Europe. Canal Plus, during this period, bought a stake in Coroco to try to stave off its bankruptcy and would hopefully use them for international distribution. However, because science fiction was slumping a bit as a genre at that time, they really didn't find any willing partners at the time for United States distribution. And that made it somewhat risky to proceed. So Kassar really tried to heavily invest in getting it pre-sold through other parts of the world so that at least they weren't going to lose money. To bring it more to life, they decided they were going to go for a lot of authenticity, especially in the ancient Egyptian dialogue. So Devlin and Emmerich hired this UCLA professor named Dr. Stuart Tyson Smith to try to construct this language, and he would also serve on the set as a dialogue coach. The language was altered to try to represent its evolution, the evolution of the ancient Egyptian language as envisioned over 10,000 years. Kassar started quibbling with uh, Devlin and Emmerich that they were really wasting a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources trying to construct this language that nobody absolutely would understand except for maybe Stuart Tyson Smith. Emmerich assured him that the science fiction fans were the ones who would absolutely care. The people who were most likely to watch Stargate were also the most likely to appreciate the effort they put into this language. They started approaching big-name actors. They wanted to get somebody on board to try to sell the picture, particularly to foreign markets. Among the actors that they consulted was Kurt Russell. Russell was initially offered $2 million for his role. That was about half of his going rate. Russell's agents at CAA, Creative Artists Agency, they pushed back on this offer. Not only was this half of Russell's rate, but they also represented two other actors that they knew had been offered much more by Devlin and Emmerich. Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. Connery received $12 million as an offer, and Wesley Snipes, $9 million. So the agents felt that Russell should at least be offered as much as Snipes, but because Captain Ron, Russell's previous film, fizzled at the box office, he was considered a bit higher of a risk, and they weren't going to give him that much. Now, Russell read the script but he hated it. He felt, you know, no big deal. He doesn't have to take this movie. And if they wanted him to accept, they were going to have to increase greatly the amount of money, much more than $2 million to get him to accept. If it was a good film, he might have accepted for less. But the huge offer did finally come after quite a few offers that were declined. 
$7 million total, it was $5 million with $2 million in guaranteed deferments. Later on, it was discovered that the reason why Russell hated the script so much was because he was shown a very sketchy draft that was created just for the studios to try to understand the concept, and he quipped that they could have really saved millions of dollars by sending him the completed script, which he actually liked a lot more. Now, despite his reticence at accepting, Russell began looking forward to making Stargate. He had just spent four months of consecutive 20-hour days performing emergency reshoots as the uncredited director on Tombstone. Also, Emmerich's enthusiasm and confidence gave Russell hope that actually maybe this wouldn't turn out to be a disaster. The script had called for a lot of effects. It was hard to envision actually how good it could be. Maybe Emmerich could pull it off. All he had to do really anyway was say his lines, even if they were awful. He did not have to get involved with the making of the film, so it was almost like being on vacation after such a grueling time. And on that, Russell decided, you know, it was better perhaps to even reduce his character's dialogue even more. He insisted that it was far more credible for him, his character, Jack O'Neill, the the traumatized soldier, to internalize his emotions. So Russell began winnowing his lines and eventually got it to about half of what was scripted. And even though this meant conceding top billing to his co-star, the one who was going to play Daniel Jackson, Russell rationalized that, hey, it was more fun to be Han Solo than Luke Skywalker anyway. Devlin and Emmerich weren't really averse to these changes. The script went through, over the years, 47 different drafts prior to the shooting script. Now, for the starring role, the Daniel Jackson role, they did want an actor that presented as intelligent, but have a lovably quirky side. Emmerich's top choice, I talked about it a little bit as I discussed Godzilla, was Matthew Broderick. He actually was written with Broderick in mind. He was unavailable, though, because he happened to be appearing on Broadway at the time and had too long of a commitment to wait. Among the other actors that they consulted, James Spader declined initially. He cited that the script was just awful. He couldn't even understand it. But after receiving a million-dollar offer, he did agree to meet with Emmerich. And Emmerich happened to be, in his pitch, so boyishly curious and enthusiastic. Eventually, Spader was won over between the money and Emmerich's exuberance for what he envisioned the film could be about. He decided that this was an adventure he, too, would kind of like to be on. Now, Spader did quibble, particularly about his character. He felt that Daniel Jackson's bumbling, comical nature, there was no way that Daniel Jackson was going to be brave enough to step through the Stargate. You know, this character probably made more sense when it was originally conceived to be a child because children, they don't always understand the danger of pursuing every curiosity, at least until they've experienced failure and then they mature. But this is what Emmerich really wanted. He wanted a man with a genius intellect that still retained his childhood impulsiveness and would not accept failure. Spader later observed that these traits actually resembled Emmerich himself, and that gave him that base of reference needed to make Daniel Jackson a fully fleshed out character, at least in his mind. Now, Spader enjoyed, in addition to his exuberance, Emmerich's flexibility in allowing his actors the freedom to try to mold their own dialogue, their own actions within the construct of the plot. Now, despite that freedom, there were occasions where Spader did have a flare-up every once in a while. There was one instance where he refused to come out of his trailer until certain script issues were fixed. Kurt Russell barged into the trailer and gave a talking to to Spader, reminding him that they had already consented to act in this film that they knew going in, at least they felt 
was poorly written. They accepted millions of dollars to try to placate those quibbles. So just get out there and do his job, which Spader did. Now, despite six months of auditions, Emmerich was still searching for the female lead for this film. He proclaimed he would know his showery when he saw her. Now, days before the scenes were meant to be shot, the casting director did supply a videotape of Israeli actress Mili Avatal, and that's where things instantly clicked in Emmerich's mind. Fortuitously, Avatal was in the United States at the time. She was attending film school on Broadway. She was also waiting tables in New York when a customer introduced herself as a talent scout and informed her that she had just scored a major role in a $60 million production opposite Kurt Russell and James Spader without even knowing it. The next day, Avatar was flying out to Arizona to Yuma to get prepped for her hair and makeup and wardrobe. Now, the philosophy behind Stargate borrows a lot of elements from many different places, but one involved Arthur C. Clarke, who once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So, Ra and his henchmen convinced the Egyptians, the ones that came through the Stargate and were enslaved on this alien planet, that they are gods because they happen to possess technology that these Egyptians do not understand. Emmerich instructed visual effects guru Jeffrey Oaken to design the alien technology. He wanted it to look much more advanced than Earth's, but still appear like it had not evolved in a long time. Now, at this point of his career, Emmerich believed practical effects and miniatures happened to be better than CG, but the effects crew convinced him otherwise through their tinkering. Digital effects firm Kleiser Walsack, they landed their first major film contract with Stargate. They, as a firm, primarily specialized in Egyptian-style effects for theme rides at Las Vegas' Luxor Hotel and Casino. They had combined digital effects with real footage to try to flesh out crowd scenes while providing realistic animation to enhance the sets and actors. The cost would be minimized because Kleiser Walsack only hired the personnel and equipment that were necessary for each project. The pyramid would be digitally placed using plate photography of this five-foot model crafted by Greg Jine. Originally, the alien planet was to have three suns, but the effects technicians couldn't really find a way to make it work, so it was proposed that three moons be used instead. The moons would be digitally altered pictures of Earth's moon from odd angles. Patrick Totopoulos provided the Egyptian god designs. The script described Ra as an elderly human man, very similar to John Gielgud. However, when one of Totopoulos's concept drawings depicted Ra as a young and somewhat androgynous pharaoh, Emmerich felt, well, hey, that might be a better approach to do Ra, and he started conceiving Ra as a younger man. During brainstorming sessions, Mario Casar suggested the actor that they could get would be Jay Davidson, whose groundbreaking Oscar nomination for The Crying Game could actually help him sell Stargate to foreign markets. Emmerich and Devlin did conceive that D- Davidson did have this aura of specialness that would be good for the part, this otherworldliness that would work. But they were concerned that Davidson lacked the acting training to try to carry a major villain role especially one that needed to recite non-English dialogue, like this ancient Egyptian that was being made up. But they did defer to Kassar's knowledge of foreign distribution enough to make an offer to Davidson. Now, Davidson at that time, he had quit acting altogether. He wanted to concentrate on his modeling career. He despised very much the attention that he had gained through his gender-bending breakthrough performance in The Crying Game. 
He only appeared at the Oscars for that when he had gotten nominated for Best Supporting Actor because the film company paid him extravagantly to attend. And that was the only reason. Hollywood did not really know what to do with Davidson. They seemingly only offered him demeaning roles in his mind, playing these freakish characters, and that was something he wanted no part to perpetuate. He wouldn't even secure an agent at the time because he feared that if they offered him money that he would accept something that would ultimately make him just as miserable. So when the Stargate role was offered, Davidson said basically no, and he said that the only way that he would ever accept is if they paid him enough that he'd never need to act ever again. When they asked him what that price was, he said a million dollars, figuring that was way out of their range. It wasn't. They paid the million dollars to Davidson, and he signed on. After location scouting in Morocco and Mexico, they did opt to set the production, as I mentioned, in the Arizona desert around Yuma because everything they needed was within a mile radius of their base. Although the July shoot avoided the dune buggy season, it was extremely hot there, about 120 degrees most days, and that proved to be very grueling. It required about 60,000 gallons of water to be trucked in daily, thousands of soft drinks, all the time for the cast and the crew and the extras to try to keep cool and hydrated. Production assistants would carry water jugs on their backs that had hoses that would spray extras down between every take. Many extras that would be hired for the day did not return, so they continuously had to look for new people in near the border to Mexico. Over 16,000 different people played extras over the shoot span, most of those Spanish speakers, so they had to also bring in interpreters. There were a lot of clever effects that were done, life-size dummies, to try to enhance these crowds so that they looked like three times that amount on the screen. Now, the heat happened to be uh, an ongoing problem. It did force set construction to be done mainly at night or perhaps early in the morning before it heated up. The town of Nagata on the planet Abydos that was not referred to by name within the film, it was only partially built. Only the center of town was constructed. The outer buildings were all computer rendered from photographs. They digitally added people walking on bridges or through doors or opening windows to try to flush things out and make it look like Things were actually going on. They didn't look like still pictures. Originally, the Stargate was black, but during the production, it looked a lot like a giant tire to most people, so they decided at the last minute to give it a a very silver, metallic look. Night shoots for this film were pretty common. They used massive lights to try to simulate daylight. It took a 30-person team to sweep away all foot and tire prints in the sand before each take. And the massive set structures, reportedly the largest since Cecil B. DeMille's Cleopatra, they were far too large for a traditional studio soundstage. So they rented the domed former Spruce Goose Hangar in Long Beach, California, happened to be one of the world's largest at 65,000 square feet. The alien beasts of burden used in this film, they're known as mastages. They were partially animatronic, but they used Clydesdale horses in disguise. They mounted these animatronic heads on top of them. They would appear alongside live actors that needed to be hosed down constantly to keep cool. They also used an Australian shepherd dog with another head mounted on it for long-distance solo shots of the mastage running. The bird of prey look for the gliders was a last-minute design change to the original look that suggested chariots. They were inspired by a winged scarab belt piece prototype that was designed by Totopolis for Raw, 
it looked like a bird of prey sideways, so they decided to use their design based on that instead of the very blocky one that Amrick originally had in mind. Other problems did emerge. Jay Davidson, in particular, was a handful. He ruffled a lot of feathers by persistently expressing his hatred, outright hatred, of even being there. He felt that everybody was staring at him, and they were all disapproving of him. His drug and his alcohol abuse was notorious. It created behavioral problems on and off the set for him. He would frequently freeze during his performance. He could not remember the Egyptian dialogue, and any time it get, came to one of his lines, he just didn't know what to do. He could not remember. Now, having Tyson Smith feeding lines into an earpiece, that seemed to be the solution, but it only frustrated him. He could never hear. He was too busy thinking to even hear or be able to recite what Tyson Smith was whispering into his ear. So they decided, well, what they needed to do was have Tyson Smith write these lines down on giant cue cards so that Davidson would be able to read them, but he couldn't really read them. So Tyson Smith would recite the lines aloud, and then Davidson would write these phonetically himself on the cue cards. But even then, he would lose his place. And when he did manage to deliver those lines, they came out very robotically. But they needed to move on, and so it just happened to be a substandard performance. Davidson also had trouble with the wardrobe. In fact, he found the raw helmet that was designed for him way too heavy, so they required a body double to come in, and he also refused to remove his newly installed nipple rings. He had pierced nipples. He didn't. He refused to remove the hoop rings that were there because he feared that the piercings would heal over and he'd have to do that all over again. So they designed Davidson to wear this breastplate when he needed to show his body, but they also used a body double when they needed to show raw in any kind of upper undress. Apparently, there are many more tales, daily tales, of Davidson doing or saying something a bit ridiculous that are out there. It wasn't until post-production that Stargate did get U.S. distribution rights, and that became critical because the budget by that point has had really started to expand. It became about $55 million, all told. Emmerich had sent 19 minutes of raw footage without any special effects or dialogue around. They especially concentrated on MGM United Artists because they had no upcoming movies in their schedule for the near term, so they needed something in their schedule. And MGM happened to like what they saw in the raw footage, enough to pick up the North American distribution rights for a late October release. They covered additional costs with hundreds of tie-in merchandising deals. And because MGM wasn't sure how to market it, Emmerich and Devlin decided to do some marketing of their own. They tried a grassroots approach to try to find their sci-fi audience, including attending science fiction conventions. They also created an official website for Stargate, and that was reportedly the first ever official one done for a film. Stargate would come to also be known as a film that catapulted composer David Arnold's career, Arnold was hired because Emmerich happened to love his work on this movie called The Young Americans. Arnold had, at that point, nearly quit composing for films because he had really made no money from his work. So he had just applied for a job as a video rental clerk when Emmerich gave him the call. Arnold was hired and given complete freedom to score his way from this outline that was given to him by Emmerich that denoted how each scene should feel emotionally. It was up to Arnold to figure out how to make those emotions come out. Arnold visited the set. He wanted to meet the actors. He wanted to gain character insights so that he could find the right tone for the music. Insights that even Emmerich and Devlin didn't even know about. 
Emmerich adored the score in the end and would be so impressed that he hired Arnold to compose his next three films, Independence Day, Godzilla, and The Patriot. After production, Kassar felt that Emmerich's rough cut that he had put together seemed to take a long, long time to finally get into action. So he requested the removal of as many introductory character moments, such as Ra's abduction or O'Neill's suicidal remorse over his son's death after playing with his gun. A lot of those were removed so that they could get into that first action beat. Unfortunately, test audiences graded this cut with only 40% positive response. Audiences claimed that the story seemed to move very slowly, and they found a lot of the plot very hard to follow, especially after lengthy sequences involving unsubtitled ancient Egyptian dialogue. Kassar then asked for further reduction of whatever talkie scenes remained, and they wanted them in reshoots to add an additional action sequence. Ironically, after this was done, test audiences deemed this cut with less talking and even more action, worse in terms of its slowness, which was very surprising to them. And Emmerich and Devlin read that as the problem really wasn't that Stargate needed more action, but that audiences were not fully invested in these characters or their mission from the outset. So at this point, since everybody expected Stargate to fail, in fact, both Kuroko and Canal Plus, which were companies facing bankruptcy at the time, and they felt that Surely, Stargate was not going to save them. Kuroko especially were needing resources at the time to fund the $100 million budgeted Cutthroat Island. These companies decided to hedge their bets by selling Stargate's franchise rights to MGM for $5 million. Devlin and Emmerich decided that if everybody else was abandoning Stargate, they might as well reinstate the excised expository scenes that they actually thought were, were beneficial And they should also add some additional moments that they had shot, but they did not include in their first cut, because then at least they would be pleased. If nobody else was pleased, at least they were going to like the movie that they put out. Apparently, test audiences also agreed because the scores actually did improve over the more action-oriented cuts that Kassar thought they should go with, but not quite to the point where it was going to be a bona fide hit because they still had a major problem. Test audiences despised the character of Ra in this film, primarily because of Davidson's performance. Davidson to them seemed very annoying, very petulant, more, much more so than intimidating or frightening. They didn't think of him as a true heavyweight villain. And Davidson's attempt at speaking in the pseudo-Egyptian dialect completely felt unconvincing. It really took them out of the movie whenever Davidson was on the screen. In fact, the audiences found the ending of the film completely unsatisfying, and they pointed out that because the way that it was written, Ra was merely a pawn of evil aliens. He was a human that was abducted as a slave to them, and he was in charge of the other slaves. So, Ra's destruction really actually did nothing to make the Egyptians truly free at the end because they only killed this pawn. Emmerich and Devlin gave this some serious consideration. In fact, they thought, well, maybe they should edit out Davidson as much as possible. So maybe if he had a lot less screen time, it wouldn't be as egregious. Maybe they should even request some reshoots, maybe try a different actor. Of course, that would increase the budget even more. And with the companies facing bankruptcy, they knew they weren't going to get very much, if anything at all. And that's when Emmerich had an epiphany. You know, what if Ra was not a human working for aliens? 
what if Ra was an alien himself? In fact, what if he was the alien? What if he was the last alien of his kind? Surely, at the end of the movie, that would mean the Egyptians were truly free. Making Ra an alien allowed them a little bit more free reign to adjust Davidson's performance in a way that would probably make him more sinister. They could alter Davidson's voice. They would redub with a more sinister-sounding voice, and they could add a very sinister glow to Davidson's eyes that would make Raw much more menacing. They'd also shoot a couple of sequences with a true alien form. They would have an alien head that they would show for Raw at the beginning of the film, but also at the end to try to give audiences some additional satisfaction when Ra's ship explodes, and that they knew that the threat, the alien threat, was finally over. After informing Davidson about these changes, Davidson did express some gratitude because he he was in rehab at the time, but he was grateful that they weren't removing him altogether from the movie. And with these changes, the test audience's grades soared substantially, and they were able to turn a short misfire into a film that they felt could actually have a lot of legs. In fact, it did have a lot of legs. Stargate ended up grossing $71 million in North America alone and another $125 million in international markets for a worldwide total of $196 million off of that $55 million budget. It, In fact, it broke the record for the best opening for a film released in October. Spader cheekily instructed audiences, hey, this is a kind of film that you leave your brain at the door. No brain cells were going to be burned watching Stargate, except for maybe people who are deliberately trying to figure out the damn plot. It was a pleasant popcorn film through the November season, and that's why it actually ended up gaining popularity through its release. Stargate is a conceptually intriguing, it is a very narratively flawed action film on top of that, but its strengths do derive from the fascination of the borrowed ideas from ancient civilization derived from an alien influence, the gods being merely aliens who are more technologically advanced beings. That's an interesting enough concept for sci-fi heads to kind of latch onto, and it does have great visuals. There's a lot of visual razzle-dazzle complemented by Arnold's gorgeous score. I think these efforts, you know, it may be muted somewhat by comic book-style writing. There are a lot of hokey one-dimensional characters here. The, The plot is fairly cliched outside of those interesting ideas that they borrowed. Kurt Russell is is pretty solid. He's terrific in a a subtle performance as the Colonel, but, you know, Spader may be a bit miscast playing the world's klutziest professor. Spader still seems a little too intelligent to be playing as goofy as he does. This is a film that is kind of all over the place. It's brilliant. It's also moronic. It's impressive. It's also disappointing to a certain extent, but you still have to credit the screenwriters, Emmerich and Devlin, for having a lot of wonderful ideas they tried to cram into this film. It might be full of time-worn movie cliches, but at the very least, it's an homage film. They were trying to recapture old Hollywood in sci-fi and in historical epics, so by that measure, I guess they did succeed. Maybe a better script would have allowed it to soar even more, but you you take what you can get. It's an entertaining watch. Too deep, it's not too heavy. But I think that most people who are intrigued by this premise will come away enjoying Stargate. And that's why I give Stargate three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it's enjoyable. If you like this kind of movie, you'll get something out of it. If you're a science fiction fan, if you like your popcorn movies, I think this will fit the bill. Anybody looking for, you know, something mind-blowing, really, or something deep and meaningful and, and philosophical, 
it's only a tease in that respect. It doesn't really deliver on those notes. So three stars out of four is the best I can give. Stargate, which is a movie that I watch with my family and they seem to enjoy it enough as well. Stargate, even though it was a big hit, there weren't any film sequels and there, there were some reasons why. MGM actually decided against doing a cinematic sequel, even though Emmerich and Devlin had conceived in their mind that this could be a trilogy because MGM decided that they were going to spin this concept into a television series and in 1998 Stargate SG-1 did emerge. Emmerich and Devlin, they offered to help out with those television series, but MGM said that they didn't have any TV experience, so they preferred to go with people who knew that medium a lot more. MGM also decided to license out Stargate. They made video games, comic books, novels, web series, and actually it's a lot of, some of those things actually have continued on over the decades. And as I mentioned, Emmerich and Devlin about those Stargate trilogy ideas, they had in mind that the second film would feature Daniel Jackson finding another Stargate somewhere within the Mayan ruins. So about the Mayan pyramids. And the third film would not necessarily be about pyramids, but it actually would incorporate a lot of other popular myths, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti, etc. And try to explain those with the Stargate. But MGM declined any more cinematic films because they felt that now that their TV series was successful, they didn't want like a competing film series that would make people confused or unenthused about continuing the success of the television show. So many television shows did emerge. There were spinoffs on spinoffs and I could go into the whole thing. I don't think I need to get into those because they are that's television. I really cover movies much more so here, even though there were a couple of TV movies. Now, in 2013, Emmerich and Devlin, they never gave up on those film ideas because they approached MGM again. They wanted to reboot Stargate into a new film trilogy. They weren't going to make sequels to this film. They were just going to reboot it starting from scratch. A deal was struck. James A. Woods and Nicholas Wright, the same writers who worked on a sequel to Independence Day, Independence Day Resurgence, they scripted the first draft, but... Because of the demoralizing experience for Emmerich and Devlin on Independence Day Resurgence, they decided they didn't want to go through that again with Stargate. No more studio battles, they just walked away. So now it's in complete limbo. There's not really anything on the board, but I'm sure an interesting idea like this will see the light of screens again, whether television or the silver screen. And if it continues on, what actually came from this movie i will cover it here on to the 90s and beyond if you have your own thoughts on stargate that you want to impart to me something i missed or something i said that you want to talk more about you can find my contact information at my website i always enjoy hearing from you so if you have anything you want to say reach out to me you can find my contact information as well as links to my social media at my website quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net as far as what I'm going to be covering on the next episode, well, I'm going to shift slightly sideways a bit for another film that similarly has a wormhole to another planet. It came out in 1997. It came out in 1997 and was much more critically acclaimed than this one. Science fiction film that was directed by Robert Zemeckis, starring Jodie Foster and also featuring Matthew McConaughey. A film called Contact, based on the Carl Sagan novel from the mid-80s. Check that out if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a while, I do encourage you to check that out. It's actually very intriguing and probably will deliver enough for you to find it entertaining. Contact 
on the next episode. So until then, thank you everyone for joining me on this trip to the 90s and beyond. <laughs>